This is the Patriot Cause with Bud Cornwell, United States Marine Corps retired. For the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. Patriots. Today is Veterans Day, not to be confused with Memorial Day. Many people do not know the difference. I'm going to talk to you about Veterans Day, what it stands for, why do we actually have a Veterans Day, and what is unique about this day. It is not just America that recognizes Veterans Day. It is recognized across the Western globe because of World War I. My wife and I are both Marines, and we joined the Marine Corps knowing that we could end up in a battle somewhere, risking our lives for this country. And that's what this day is about. It's not necessarily about those veterans that died. It's about all veterans and what they have sacrificed in this world to give peace to the world, not just America, but the world. So let's talk about the origin of Veterans Day. This is from the Naval Academy. There's lots of places you can do the research to understand it, but I think these words 
in a few paragraphs is going to give us a complete understanding of this particular day and the importance of this day. Veterans Day originated as Armistice Day on November 11th, 1918. It originally commemorated the armistice between the Allied forces and Germany that took place on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, 11, 11, 11. On June 28th of 1919, so almost a year after, the Treaty of Versailles was signed, officially ending World War I. However, the day of ceasefire, Armistice Day, marked the end of hostilities with Germany and the war to end all wars. Think about that. World War I was supposed to end all wars. How did that work out, right? In November of 1919, President Woodrow Wilson designated November 11th as the first commemoration of Armistice Day, stating, To us in America, the reflections of Armistice Day will be filled with solemn pride in the heroism of those who died in the country's service and with gratitude for the victory, both because of the thing from which it was freed us and because of the opportunity it has given America to show her sympathy with peace and justice in councils of the nation. In 1926, Congress passed a resolution for an annual observance of Armistice Day. In 1938, November 11th became a national holiday, primary as a date set aside to honor World War I veterans. However, in 1954, after World War II and Korea, President Dwight D. Eisenhower, by the way, General Eisenhower, officially changed the name of the holiday from Armistice Day to Veterans Day. Veterans Day was now a day to commemorate veterans of all wars, living and deceased. So that is the truth about this day. Memorial Day is different because we focus on the people and the veterans that give the ultimate sacrifice, their lives for this country. But this day is for all veterans. And it's for you if you're not a veteran. It gives you the opportunity to hug a veteran, to give them the love and appreciate what they have done. I'm going to dedicate this podcast specifically to Vietnam War individuals because I was trained by World War II, Korea, and Vietnam War individuals when I came into the military after the Vietnam War. So we're going to take a break. When we get back, we're going to listen to stories of veterans that were in Vietnam. And hopefully, 
somewhere in your heart and your mind and your soul, there will be a trigger to understand why we actually have Veterans Day. Because these vets did not die in that war, at least not physically. So we'll be right back. just heard was the theme songs of all the services 
and how proud we are to be Americans and to serve in this country. When you join the military, you're called up and you go where the government sends you, good, bad, or indifferent. And you are in harm's way. These veterans must be appreciated all the time, not just on Veterans Day, because these are the people that preserve your rights and your country in this world. With that, we're going to head on into listening to Vietnam vets tell their story about when they were in Vietnam. Shortly after being uh, uh, weapons tested at Eglin, uh, uh, they sent four of us with some special weapon systems, top secret in those days, to Ubon, Thailand, and, and that's where I flew uh, until I was shot down. Most of my missions were not walleye missions. They were just general missions so I could get adapted to combat. In any event, it was uh, one of those special missions where they actually shot down two out of the four of us because we came in low. It was January 68, January 18th, 68, when I was shot down. I knew it was hit, but I kept it going to get to the Gulf of Tonkin. And that was some, you know, 60 miles away. It took me maybe 15 minutes to get to before I could see the water, thinking I could make it and then eject. And it was pretty low. And before I could get there, the plane just went inverted. In the F-4, when you punch out, there are two. So when you pull, you eject, one seat goes before the other so you don't hit each other. And so it's a pretty simple process and they thankfully the McDonnell Douglas built that into the process so when we both got out we, it was pretty obvious that when we turned upside down we we're gonna go out so I was shot down at 3:30 in the afternoon to basically time over target and by uh, dusk they uh, tracked me down and uh, captured me and uh, stripped me naked and paraded me uh, you know, for hours it seemed like. And it was about two days later I finally made it to Hanoi. Other than cuts and bruises and, you know, I was not injured. I didn't have any broken bones, so I was very fortunate. They put me in a place called the Plantation out of the old Wawa prison. The first thing was the beatings and torture and trying to have your right for some confessions. And then I was placed solo for months and months. Honestly, I, it was just, uh, totally in uh, dismay, despair. How did this happen to me? I had this whole thing going you know, on my way. Uh, and it took, I think it was six or eight weeks before I take me to the bathhouse. And then all of a sudden I hear the first American voice in weeks and months. And he says, Hey, new guy, get on your knees, get down to the drain. And he was yelling to me through the bottom. But he gave me the code for the tap code. Five rows, five columns, the C and the K are the same. So that's how we communicate. We did pass down a lot of policies 
They were in place because they wanted to make sure that our conduct was in line with the military code of conduct for prisoners of war. When you're interrogation, when you're beaten, and how you, uh, what you, you know, how you get through that, how you don't want to compromise yourself. These things gave you a little latitude of how you could skirt the issue somewhat and still live through it. Probably the most important thing is we all had to memorize, put them in alphabetical order, any POW that had ever been known and where they were in a, you know, so we passed that along. If you're released early, I think that's pretty solid evidence that you, you haven't honored the code of conduct. But there was one fellow, he was 19 years old, he was a seaman, 19. He wasn't shot down. He fell off a destroyer in the Gulf of Tonkin. So Doug Hegdahl was told three times, and he refused to take early release. That guy had been rounding up all the names, 350 at that time, phone numbers, wives' names, kids' names. He refused to go until he got all the names and numbers. They moved me out of a place called the Plantation along with others up into right on the China border. And believe it or not, the United States didn't even know we were there. And it was right after the peace agreements were signed, they put us on trucks and brought us back and said, what, what's going on? We didn't know the word in it. About a week or so later, they put us on trucks and took us to the airport <laughs> on a bus. So anyway, get out to this uh, tarmac at the airport, Jalam, and the bus turns the corner and I see this airplane. One's circling to land, one's on the ground. And as soon as it turned the corner, got off the bus, somebody grabs my arm in a Air Force uniform. <laughs> Get on. <laughs> they didn't stop. You know, just landed, didn't stop, put me on, walk on. And the next thing I'm reading a magazine, a newspaper, take off. And three hours later, I'm in the Philippines and at the hospital. So, it was an interesting day. I grew up in, on the south side of Milwaukee, a uh, typical blue-collar neighborhood. All our fathers and uncles were World War II veterans, and that was the era we grew up in. Although we thought we were pretty savvy kids, in our own neighborhood we were, but we weren't very worldly. But we did start paying attention to Vietnam. There was a draft, and we all knew it, and the kids in my neighborhood, we didn't go to college, uh, when our time came, we went in the military. And in my case, I joined the Marine Corps. And that would have been the very beginning of 1968. In the Marine Corps, 
We were all going to Vietnam. You couldn't imagine what it was you were going to. We were all young, tough guys, and that whole platoon did go to Vietnam. Most were infantry. I was trained as a radio operator in an infantry company. We landed in uh, Da Nang, which was a large air base, and then from there we took another flight north to where our company was headquartered out of. That was a city called Dong Ha. They kept us there for about five days just to get acclimated to the heat. Then in a few days, we helicoptered out to where our company was. It was an infantry company and we were out in the bush as we called it. Well, our first job was behind a, it was a medical unit, almost like MASH would be on TV. And behind there, there was a pile of clothing about the size of a small car. And our job was to go through the clothes these were all wounded and killed in action. Well, that was a real eye-opener for us because some of the trousers would have legs missing and a gaping hole in the back of a shirt. And I remember the guy that I was with, he said, God, he said, I hope we're not going where these guys came from. Well, the guy that was heading up this working party, he said, that's exactly where you're going. You're their replacements. We got into something that you can't even imagine. There's no way to even articulate what it was. And although, looking backwards, the Marine Corps tried to prepare you for it, and they did the best they could, but there is no preparation for that. As a radio operator, I was the communications between what we were doing and back at headquarters. That was our link, that was our communications. You know, we did what the Marines did over there. We went out on daytime patrols, nighttime patrols, night ambushes, listening posts. The DMZ was the demilitarized zone which separated North Vietnam from South Vietnam. The entire 3rd Marine Division was in that area and they were all mobile infantry companies. So we were on the move a lot. It was an area that was thick with North Vietnamese soldiers. A lot of battles went on up there. Ha San was a famous battle that lasted 77 days. I wasn't involved in Ha San, but a lot of those hills had been fought for many times and then abandoned. They'd be taken, abandoned. Months later, you might be fighting for the same hill. At the time, we weren't aware of all the politics that were going into this. We were fighting for survival. Well, the Marine Corps motto is Semper Fidelis. The translation is simply always faithful. You're faithful to your country, your Marine Corps, but more importantly, the Marine to your left and right. You're fighting for each other. You're 19 and fighting like hell to make it 20. As Marines, you go where the Marine Corps tells you to go and you do what you have to do without question. That may sound foolish to a lot of people, but that's what the Marine Corps was all about. A lot of veterans came home with deep feelings of guilt. And most of it is survivor guilt. Why did I, how did I come home and these guys didn't? Well, there's no way to know that. It's not, it's not because the survivors fought harder or were smarter. It wasn't anything like that. That's the, that's the way of war. Some make it, some don't. But <clears throat> as a survivor, it's our duty now to tell the story of these guys. You can't forget all these men. 
And their story, I think, simply was they were average young men who, when their country called, they went. And they fought as valiantly as any warrior in history. So we're going to take a break. And the reason I want you to listen to this song, this is an individual musician that gets it and understands what a veteran really is. And we all should abide by the same conceptual idea that veterans are special individuals that have given their lives and their families and all the things that we have done, the deployments that we do, the Christmases and the Thanksgiving and the parties, everything that we missed to support this country, which we are proud to have done. This is a real veteran, especially those that have spent lots of time as a veteran, given up their freedoms here to go fight for this country elsewhere. politicians we all hear from those movie stars but what about the people who really have our backs laying their lives down on the line for us it's not for fame or glory hey it sure ain't about the money Guard, Navy and the Air Force, hail all the men and women who take up the fight, protecting our freedoms, paying the price. Let me thank you for your service. Silence for those who never came home. Another moment for those still trying. Hands up for the families keeping them in prayer. And flags of freedom flying everywhere.
I was flying in the Air Defense Command in uh, Massachusetts, and we learned about the Vietnam War and they needed people. So I went to a personnel officer and I said, I want the next assignment that comes into Vietnam. And I got it. <laughs> in 1963, I was stationed at Nha Trang, Vietnam. We were an experimental unit, one of McNamara's dreams. We had about 10 airplanes and maybe 12 pilots. At that time, of course, we were basically embedded with the Vietnamese and advising them. In my case, I was teaching Vietnamese pilots. They weren't pilots yet. I was teaching them to be pilots. The first tour, I was there for one year, and then I came back to the U.S. in the summer of 1964. I went back in 72, 73, and 74 flying F-4s, Phantoms. And this time I was stationed at Udorn Air Base in Thailand, Northern Thailand, and flying all over Southeast Asia. Near the end, uh, I was the operations officer, and that was a little more exciting because we had flights that started about 4 a.m. and the last plane would land maybe 9, 10 at night. We were flying pretty much that schedule. As the ops officer, I was in charge of all the flying, of course, and <clears throat> during one period, we were flying 22 combat missions a day with a total of 17 crews. And that was tough, because they're long missions. Anyway, this one day I had flown in the morning and I was back at my desk and we got a call in for a very quick sortie to the Delta of Vietnam. Coming back, I flew across Cambodia and being so familiar with it, I saw a whole bunch of trucks coming down Route 13. And I said, that's very interesting. So I dropped down and took some pictures while they tried to shoot us up pretty well. But I got the pictures, took them back, and uh, they developed them, and all hell broke loose. Uh, first of all, they are going to court-martial me because I wasn't supposed to be in Cambodia doing anything. <laughs> they had already put that off limits. And then they realized what the pictures I had taken were hundreds and hundreds of Vietnamese trucks, North Vietnamese trucks. So pretty soon the four-star flew in, <laughs> And I was briefing him on what I saw with the pictures on the wing of his airplane, his, teeth, his transport business jet. He immediately took them, flew to Phnom Penh, and the Cambodians got all excited. Meanwhile, other Air Force assets were tasked to find these trucks and couldn't find them for two days. And I said, let me go back. I know where I saw them. I, you know, they only have so plenty places to go. Well, for two days, they wouldn't let me go back. Third day, I went back, found just the corner of a truck sticking out from under a tree, took it back, and the Cambodians actually went out in their T-28s and bombed it. This huge mass of trucks were hidden in a Michelin rubber plantation. And when the Cambodian Air Force bombed it, the whole 
plantation blew up. I think about war in general, it is not taught to our people, our school kids and anybody nearly enough because these are the most traumatic things that happen to any nation. And when only 10% or less of the people who live in a country actually have ever had a touch of the war, I mean, even their family members and so on and so forth, like our Congress, you can't ignore it. We'd like to, but you can't ignore it. And, and you've got to build that into your psyche and your planning. If you do that, we won't have so many wars. I graduated from uh, University of Illinois um, <clears throat> in the mid-year, January of 1966, and, and received a uh, draft notice 10 days later. And so I decided to enlist, because I had a college degree, and they had a, what they called the College Option OCS program. And um, if you uh, joined up, you could pick your branch. And so I joined up and picked my branch, and ever since I was a little kid, I loved tanks. So I picked armor as a branch. It was commissioned in 1967, February of 1967. What I got was a tour that everybody wanted in Germany. And I joined a tank battalion in uh, Gelnhausen, Germany. And, um, and then I rose to uh, the rank of first lieutenant, and, but became a company commander, tank company commander. So I was in, in Germany and in a long tour and decided I wanted to go to Vietnam. Not so much for patriotic reasons, but actually because I wanted to experience it. And so um, I put in for a transfer and was turned down. So I ultimately wrote my senator. I was from Chicago and my senator was Senator Everett Dirksen. And I got a response from his office almost immediately. And they said, oh, absolutely. <laughs> and I received orders uh, 30 days later. And so I joined as a tank platoon leader. I joined uh, the 82nd Airborne. I ended up uh, commanding uh, Echo Company of the 1st, the 505 Infantry in the 82nd Airborne. The entire battalion was sent south and after Tet to um, provide security initially for Tonsonut Air Force Base. And then actually we ended up in an area just northwest of Saigon and there was a big marsh there and there was a lot of Viet Cong activity there. Almost every night we sent patrols into uh, this marsh and because that was a primary infiltration route into Saigon. And these were small units, a squad, generally. My company, an infantry company, had a couple of hundred soldiers in it, but there was very rarely ever a couple hundred soldiers. We generally operated with about 80 soldiers in the field. And so we would send out, a, you know, 10 to, 10 to 15 man patrols at night. The problem of soldiers being high on drugs was a continuing problem. And uh, I remember one particular time, we were inside the firebase, and uh, a soldier was totally stoned and was cleaning his weapon. 
M16. And he jammed, I'll never forget this, he jammed the butt of the rifle on the ground and it went off. And uh, he was holding it in his hand and he jammed it on the ground and it went off a full automatic and it shot his hand off right in front of me. As an officer, I found myself not trying to get too close to the soldiers that were in my company. I saw my job as trying to run the company and uh, the day-to-day -day of it. I didn't get too close to anybody. I came home and, uh, and actually traveled in uniform back. I, I processed out at Fort Dix and then um, got on, you know, flew to Chicago and um, had a terrible series of experiences while I was traveling because there was a great deal of anti-war sentiment and, um, you know, I had people say th really nasty things to me and lots of other soldiers did too. As I got home and, and became a civilian and um, really did not talk about the war at all. I think my lasting impression was not so much of the horror of war, it was the waste of war. The Army had a program called Early Commissioning Program. If you signed up when you got into veterinary school, the Army would guarantee you that you would get to finish school and so we were guaranteed that, and the Army was guaranteed a steady supply of veterinarians uh, to uh, support the war effort in Vietnam. I graduated in the spring of 1970, went in the Army that fall, and then the next spring I went to Vietnam. We were mainly in the Army to be veterinarians, but the, of course we had to learn how to be an Army person too, so they, we were sent to Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Texas for 30 days. and. Uh, there, we learned how to salute, and uh, we learned how to fire the M16. We had a little map reading, uh, that sort of thing, got our uniforms. Then, all the veterinarians had to go to uh, meat and dairy hygiene school in Chicago for eight weeks. The veterinary corps, all, besides taking care of the, the dogs, they also, uh, they also are responsible for food inspections. We arrive in Saigon, and then as I remember, we go to the, the headquarters of the colonel, who is a veterinarian who assigns captains like me uh, uh, to different bases within Vietnam where they need a veterinarian, where the, uh, the scout dogs were positioned. What the Army had was mostly scout dogs, which were mostly German Shepherds, and they were trained to go and lead patrols in the bush or in the jungle, and uh, they were trained to detect enemy booby traps or enemy personnel. And then we also had a few Labrador retrievers who were trained as tracker dogs. At the height of the war, there were around 5,000 scout dogs. And uh, a typical scout dog uh, platoon would be about 30 dogs. I was stationed in Chu Lai mainly when I got there, but as the war was winding down, there were fewer veterinarians. So I traveled all over what we called MR1 and 2. That were the two military regions on the north. They were military region one, two, three, and four, and I was, I traveled all over. From the demilitarized zone in the north down to Quinyan, which is a, a city on the, on the uh, South China Sea, about midway up in Vietnam, and as far west as uh, Pleiku. 
we took care of the dogs. We had, you know, a lot of maintenance, you know, uh, uh, take care of any sickness, lameness, uh, teeth problems, that sort of thing. And unfortunately, uh, a good bit of our veterinary time was taken up with treating wounds. You know, they were wounded uh, too, just like the soldiers. One dog uh, alerted on a North Vietnamese ambush uh, and all of our guys hit the ground and then the dog started out towards the Vietnamese and so that guy had to expose himself and he shot the dog and the bullet went in his back leg, shattered the tibia. Anyway, after he shot the dog, our guys got him and then a big firefight broke out. And when things were quieted down enough, they got the dog on the helicopter. He came right to my place, you know. And uh, so uh, he was in shock. We uh, drew blood from our blood donor dog, got him a blood transfusion, uh, stabilized him. And then uh, the next day we uh, went in, pinned that leg, put it in a splint, a Thomas splint, and he did great. He went back into service before I left. Probably the worst thing that happened, uh, uh, these uh, troopers uh, in a helicopter platoon brought in this little puppy. And as soon as I saw him, I knew that puppy had rabies. I mean, he, he had, he was snapping at everything and they thought it was funny. You know, they were, you know, petting him and everything. And uh, I said, man, this is bad. I said, has this dog scratched or bit anybody or anything like that? And I said, yeah, probably so, you know. And so the commander of that helicopter platoon sent a helicopter to my office, picked me up, took me out there and you know, and had all of his officers and uh, NCOs there, and we had a big discussion, you know, and, and I, I told him, here's what we have to do to contain this. There were 42 guys that had to take the, the rabies shots because of that, that little puppy. I recently read a uh, biography of Stonewall Jackson, and he was just absolutely against the war. But once it came, he was the fiercest fighter there was, you know, and that's probably, the, that's probably a good example for all of us. We should do everything we can to avoid war. But if we're in a war, let's win it. There are millions of veterans in America that have the same stories and the horrors of war. You may not understand what I'm fixing to tell you, but the heroes are the ones that have died. The men and women that came back from these wars have to live with this for the rest of their lives. They had to adjust their lives just to be able to to make it in society, and many times, especially in Vietnam, when the country actually hated them. This is where we're going today. Yes, this country, a vast majority of this country, do not understand veterans, do not understand what we have done for this country. And lots of them, millions of them, do not think we should even have a military. Think about that one. They do not think that we should even have a military. I am 
solely appreciative of all the leaders and the Marines that fought these wars that taught me and kept me in line in the 20 years that I spent in the Marine Corps to understand the importance of not only those in the past, but even those in the future to the defense of the greatest country in the world. Unfortunately, today, the politicians and the woke and the cancel culture ideas are destroying and crumbling the conceptual idea of this country. And I'm here to tell you, whether you believe it or not, the veterans will stand up and we are standing up. Please share this podcast far and wide. And if you haven't been to the conventionofstates.com, conventionofstates.com, go check out the website, tell your friends, tell your family. This is how we can get a hold of this federal government and ensure that the blood and the sacrifice of the veterans in this country is being honored. Thank a veteran today. Thank a veteran always. This is The Gunny out.